All right, we're going to start off today with the 21st Psalm. This is to the chief musician. It's a Psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and, the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall de devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for bringing us here today in this beautiful weather. The fall has arrived, and uh, what a difference from last week in the heat of the sun. We thank you for that. We thank you uh, for the uh, chance to come and praise you and to worship you and to hear from your word. And I would ask that each, per each person here is just blessed in their heart and in their soul, not just today, but throughout the week ahead, and that uh, you will guide them and direct their steps and help them to uh, make right decisions in their life, decisions which will uh, continue on and uh, bring you glory uh, with uh, each successive thing that happens because of those decisions and that wrong decisions won't come about. But uh, in all things, just help us to remember to uh, live our lives for you. And when we do, we know that the things will be as they should and that our lives will be governed properly. We thank you for your word, which teaches us these things. And we thank you for your son, our Lord and Savior, who shows us the way of truth and the, the, the heart of your love. We thank you for him and we praise you in his name. Amen. Uh, I've got a couple of announcements today, and uh, the first one is going to be kind of sad. It's not kind of sad. It's really sad. Um, Darlene here and her husband and uh, her mother are here for the last week. Uh, they're moving to Virginia. Is that right? And uh, I was going to say West Virginia. I knew that wasn't right. But uh, anyway, they're moving, and uh, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate their efforts over the uh, past years not just at Church on the Beach, which, they, which they've been great attendees and they've been faithful friends. Uh, more than that, though, uh, in particular, Darlene has been, she has been all over Sarasota. I don't know how Craig, uh, Greg even stip, uh, stays up with her because of all of the uh, uh, things that she does. She uh, uh, is into the uh, abortion, um, you know, defense against abortion campaign. She's been in the Republican Party of Sarasota. She's, everywhere you go, she shows up somewhere. And um, uh, I'm a little choked up and I'm not thinking properly right now, but uh, it, it, it's a difficult day for me because of uh, my respect for these people and for their just their faithfulness to causes that mean so much to the people of Sarasota. And it's a loss to church on the beach as well. So I just wanted to thank you all for everything that you've done for us in the past. And I wish you Godspeed in the future. And uh, I, I pray that you will find happiness where you're at and that uh, 
it won't be long before you decide you just can't be without Sarasota and you want to move back here. So two years they'll be gone. And uh, uh, I, uh, oh gosh. Anyway, this is this is uh, in service of the nation. Is that right? What you're doing uh, with the job, and so we understand that it's just like when Paul and Elaine left a year ago to do missionary work. There are certain things that we have a calling towards, and uh, so uh, that's the situation here. And I just wanted once again to thank you all for that. And um, there's uh, one particular prayer request that I have. There's somebody that helps me out a great deal that I've never met. And he's done an immense amount of work for me personally, as far as the church on the, the uh, actually the superior word are coming, uh, building the, the website. And uh, he, um, I won't give his name, but he asked for uh, prayer, uh, not by name, but just for a situation in his home. And so I want to uh, uh, just ask you to pray for him. And uh, of course, there's all kinds of other things that we need prayer for in life. Uh, I know that there are people making life decisions here uh, today and uh, the uh, trials and things that come along with that, but at the same time, the joys that come along with that. And uh, these kind of things are in my heart and my prayers every single night. But uh, I'm glad to see Paul and Lane are back. They were traveling and uh, we had them in prayer for safety there and here they're back safely. Um, I will say this about the, uh, the building. Um, I had really hoped that we would be in there next Sunday, and I don't think that's going to happen simply because there's been a couple of small delays, but every single delay causes everything else to back up. And because of that, it looks like we're not going to have the CO done by Friday. Um, and next Sunday, I'm going to say this, um, and the people that are here that won't be here next Sunday, there's at least Darla and maybe some other people, um, if in fact we move in on the 13th, and it's after the service on the 6th, I'm not coming back on the 13th and saying we're moving in on the 20th. In other words, we're just going to move in on the 13th. And so you got to watch Facebook, email me, and I'll try to make sure everybody knows this, either through the daily devotional or through Facebook or whatever. But once this building is ready, we're out of here. So uh, we're that close, but uh, there are just little things that, that have come up that have caused a couple delays. But it is, it's exciting. I took my mom there yesterday, and she thought it looked beautiful. I mean, the, the, the colors, and it looks more open, and, and uh, the carpet's not in yet. But uh, once that's done, it'll be even nicer, and it'll have that nice, fresh smell. But uh, anyway, um, I think that's probably all of the announcements I have. I think everybody here has uh, been scripturally baptized, and I see two people that just showed up that I don't know if they have or not. And so one thing I offer is uh, anybody that has never been scripturally baptized, which means being baptized after accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's lots of water out here. And so you're more than welcome to say, hey, I want to do that today or any day of the week um, uh, that I do offer that. And uh, it's, what it is, it's a picture of being buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life through the power of the resurrection. So it's a picture. It's an acceptance of what Christ has done, and it's a public acknowledgement of that. So if that's something that anybody here wants to do, um, uh, I'll be happy to do it. And um, today is our 90th Genesis sermon. It's called The Generations of Esau. It's on chapter 36 of Genesis. And if you've ever read that chapter, you will see that it's not a chapter that you've probably ever heard a sermon on before. It's not the kind of thing that uh, uh, is conducive to sermons, and yet it's a part of God's word, and therefore it is conducive to sermons. What I'm saying is that you just have to do a little more uh, uh, study in order to get it out, and I really think that you'll be pleased with what comes out of today's uh, 14 verses of that chapter. Uh, if you're not aware of what I'm talking about, I will refer to the previous sermons that you can watch online, but it all ties together, and it all will make great sense. Um, We'll go ahead and uh, get into the uh, next psalm. 
and uh, then we'll start the sermon. I know there's something I'm, I'm kind of delaying. I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm kind of broken up about uh, Darlene and, and the family moving, and uh, so my mind is a little bit off today, but... Um, 40 Days for Life. 40 Days for Life is one thing that we talked about last week, and I want to mention it now. Thank you. Um, right now it's the 40 Days for Life, which is the anti-abortion support the right to life. And so uh, that's something that's ongoing right now. If you have any questions about that, she can answer that. She can tell you who to talk to and where to go. And uh, it is uh, something that is getting worse, not better, in our nation. And uh, I I hate to say it, but Obamacare is uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, opponents to the freedom of life that we could come across. If you uh, saw the post or the uh, the article that came out on Drudge uh, this past week, and it's not a Drudge article, it's linked to a regular uh, news service, it really is appalling what we are required to pay for with our tax dollars. So um, uh, 40 Days to Life is something that is uh, uh, personally important to me, and uh, I know several people here that uh, feel the same. So please keep that in your mind, keep that in your prayers, and um, we'll go on and read the uh, Next psalm in order, which is, it's a little longer than some of the psalms, but it is a messianic psalm. It is pointing to the work of Jesus Christ, and uh, you can't miss it. You, you simply can't miss it if you know who Jesus is and what he did. So we'll go ahead and read that. And I want to make one more announcement before we get into this. Um, I know that I have two people that are working on the music portion of the uh, Superior Word building. And hopefully that will come out by the time that we open up. Um, it will be um, music and then we'll hand out, um, you know, paper with words on it. But I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I have no skill in those type of things. And if anybody knows how to, you know, uh, get it onto a projector, I will be happy to go buy the projector, and we can plug it in and have it on a screen instead of in our hands. Whatever you guys want, we will make it happen so that your worship is from your heart and you feel like, uh, you know, it's not just Charlie reading psalms. And don't get me wrong, I could read the psalms all day long, and I love them. And I also love to hear the psalms sung in a cappella. It's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever hear. But that's not something that I would do. Instead of crying out of joy, you'd be crying out of tears. So if you want to have music in this building, and if you want to uh, uh, have something that you say, this is the way that I want to worship, just submit it, and we will make it happen. But I don't have the skills personally to do it. We just need to have somebody show me what to do, and then we can do it. All right. Anyway, we'll get into the 22nd Psalm. Wonderful words. Absolutely wonderful words. To the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, 
and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Wonderful words, absolutely wonderful words. Um, as I said, uh, we're going to go ahead and get into Genesis 36. And uh, before we do that, as I do each week, I uh, want to give you um, this day in history. And today is the 29th of September. There's not a lot, and you'll notice that because I add in some things that I normally wouldn't add in, um, like I did a couple weeks ago. But that's still a couple of interesting things. Uh, in 480 B.C., the Battle of Salamis occurred. It was the Greek fleet under Themistocles, Themistocles um, which defeated the Persian fleet under Xerxes I. And uh, this was the movement of the empires from the Persian Empire to the Greek Empire, and it was beginning at this point. And that is something that was actually prophesied in the book of Daniel. It's very clear, and it's so clear, Daniel's prophecies, that go up until even today's time, that people say, oh, well, those were all written later. I mean, they're just so obvious, and yet there's no doubt that Daniel wrote these things before they occurred because he was under the inspiration of God and uh, of the Holy Spirit. But uh, anyway, this is something that occurred at that time, and it did set up the movement of the kingdoms and the, the power bases of these nations that would have control over and either afflict or support the people of Israel. Um, 19, I'm sorry, 1789, a regular army was established by the U.S. War Department with several hundred men. So you think about the Department of the Army now. I mean, we got soldiers all over the place. We've got a giant bureaucracy to support them. And uh, it all started on this day with just a few hundred men. And uh, uh, then in 1907, construction begins on the Washington National Cathedral, something that was built to the glory of God. It's a beautiful edifice there in uh, uh, our cap nation's capital. And yet I was almost in tears when I was thinking about this uh, uh as I was typing this up, because in June, they uh, rang the bells for an hour out of jubilation that gay marriage was now authorized in the Washington National Cathedral. And uh, 
this is the Anglicans, the Church of Christ, the uh, Episcopals, and there are, I think, a couple other de denominations which use this edifice, which was dedicated to the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Now it's become a place of perversion, and it's been, become a place which is abhorrent to God. And if we think that we deserve God's blessing when the National Cathedral rings out bells for this, we don't. And as I say week after week, you will never hear me say, God bless America. It will not happen. It is bless God, America. And when we do that as a nation once again, I will ask God to bless us. And I think everybody here should have the same heart and attitude that what we are doing in this nation is appalling. So I just, I, I, I'm not ashamed of saying that. And I think that every person here should feel exactly the same way. Um, 1930, Lowell Thomas made his debut on CBS radio. And he was in the uh, radio business for the next, get this, 46 years. And if you don't know who he is, he's the man who made uh, Lawrence of Arabia famous. And uh, his career uh, took off from there. And uh, just a, uh, uh, you know, a, a great uh, person of the radio for years and years. And on this same day in 1930, uh, Bing Crosby was married to, does anybody know who his first wife was? Real pretty. I'd never seen her until I looked this up. Her name's Dixie Lee. And uh, they were married. They had children. And uh, eventually uh, she died of ovarian cancer. It was in, uh, I think, 1952 that she died. And so, you know, kind of sad for Bing, but uh, she was a part of his life and they had children together. And uh, uh, that was this day in 1930. And then in 1951, something that doesn't interest me at all, but I needed some filler here, is the first uh, network football game was televised by CBS TV in color. Uh, maybe you uh, are a fan of either the University of California or the University of Pennsylvania, but they squared off against each other in color on TV on this day in 1951. And um, then in 1960, ah, this is, you know, this is one of those things that just kind of breaks my heart as well. Uh, my three sons debuted on ABC TV, and it was one of these wholesome family shows where the children had respect for the parents, and they worked out families, uh, family problems together and life's problems together. And uh, you just don't see that anymore. Uh, that was Fred McMurray, uh, one of those, you know, shows that really builds you up and makes you uh, uh, feel like you're, you're a part of a, a, a normal society. And nowadays, we, don't, we just don't have TV like that. But that was on this day in uh, 1960. Then in 1962, something I actually agree with that the U.S. government did, which is surprising, um, U.S. President John F. Kennedy nationalized the Mississippi National Guard in response to city officials defying federal court orders. The orders had been to enroll James Meredith in the University of Mississippi. And guess what? He was a black man and they wouldn't do it. And I think what a disgrace. Our nation it was under this pall many, many years after the uh, Civil War. And uh, these people were obstinate and they were, they were fighting against something that should not be fight, fought against. And here we have the opposite today. We've got people fighting for things that should not be fought for. And we've got the homosexual issue and we've got the abortion issue and all these other issues that people are, are fighting for, which is totally contrary to the word of God. And yet this was a human being created in God's image being denied the fundamental uh, right to use his mind to grow and to expand and to think. So uh, good job, U.S. government, on that one. And uh, they don't get many kudos from me, but they got this one. Um, 1963, another fun show. I know my brothers and I used to love to watch this. It was called My Favorite Martian. Uh, that premiered on CBS TV. And does anybody remember the two main actors? Uh, Ray Walston or Roy Walston. I can't read my own handwriting. And I don't remember him, but I do remember Bill Bixby. 
he was the uh, he was the uh, young man, and then you had Ray with the uh, antennas, and that was just one of those fun shows that we watched when we were young. Very innocent, no profanity, nothing like that, and uh, you know, just time moves on. 1982 on this day in Chicago, Illinois, seven people died from taking extra strength Tylenol laced with cyanide. And I remember that happening and uh, very sad that you go to get yourself uh, cured and instead you end up in a box. Uh, that's the way of the world. And as I say every week, almost every week, I try to pull one of these out and uh, remind you that you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to take a medicine and have a reaction or you're going to get in your car and, and be run over, uh, accident and die, whatever. Uh, we don't know. And we don't have control over that. Only God does. And uh, does anybody remember the person that actually did the lacing of these with uh, cyanide? Ted Kaczynski. And uh, anyway, uh, he paid for uh, what he did, but uh, they did catch him. But there is something good to come out of it, if you can call this good at all, is that now we have, you know, uh, tamper-free bottles. So it won't happen again, hopefully. I mean, they have the thing on the top that's almost impossible to pull off, and you've got the plastic around the top, so if you twist it, 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 uh, it'll break. And so that was those all came about. We got some young people over here, including my son, that wouldn't remember that we didn't have that kind of stuff back then. It was just a bottle with a piece of, uh, uh, what do you call it, cotton stuffed in there, and that was it. But uh, this guy alerted us to the, the nature of the fallen world. So there you go. That's this day in history and uh, 29 September. And... Um, I'm going to go ahead and read our text for today. And as I said, I, I think that you will enjoy this sermon. But when we get started, you may think, what, what is all of this about? If you've never read this passage, um, this is chapter 36, verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of um, Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, uh, sister of Nebiot. Now, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel. And Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his uh, brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together in the land where they were strangers, could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wives. These were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Chapter 36 of Genesis is one which is, as you know, almost completely disregarded by people when they read the Bible. I've done a couple uh, Genesis Bible studies, and I got to tell you, we went rather quickly through this particular chapter. I didn't give it a lot of study and a lot of thought, and uh, we came up with a couple points, and we talked about the difficulty of reading some of these names. But uh, 
That's uh, just the way it is normally with chapter 36 of Genesis. Name after name is given, and there's seemingly nothing which is attractive or new to keep one's attention. So if it's read at all, instead of being skipped over, it's read without any real thought or reflection. And so when you get to the end of it, you think, what did I just read? Not since chapter 25 in the genealogy of Ishmael has there been such a long list of names which seem to have no purpose. Before that, one has to go all the way back to chapter 10, which is the table of nations, in order to find such a long and difficult to comprehend list. And yet, I will tell you this. We, I determined I'm going to go through chapter 10, the table of nations, and I did three sermons on it. And in fact, I want you to know that of all of the sermons that I've done that are recorded on YouTube, that may be the most watched of all of the sermons I did from just a list of names. So there is always something in God's word if you're willing to research it out. And uh, I, I, one of these days, I'm going to go back and watch the sermon to see what I said, because there's so many names that, you know, you just you kind of get bogged down. And I want to go back and refresh myself on it. But uh, that's the way it was. And this chapter here is broken down into six sections, which seemingly repeat and just overlap each other. They don't really, though. Instead, they show the sequence of time and the rulers throughout the history of Edom. In order, these six sections are as follows, and I want to tell you how it's broken down. I don't mean to bore you, but there's a reason why it's this way. Verses 1 through 8 is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom, and the wives and children he had while living in Canaan. Verses 9 through 14 is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites after his move to Mount Seir. All right, then in verses 15 through 19 is the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Verses 20 through 30 is the sons of Seir, the Horite who inhabited the land. Seemingly has nothing to do at all with Esau. Then in verses 31 through 39, the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And finally in verses 40 through 43, there's a different set of the chiefs of Esau. Now passages, like I say, uh, uh, such as uh, chapter 36 of Genesis do not normally uh, lend themselves to exciting sermons but they're a part of God's word and they're important. And they're important for us to understand what lies ahead for God's people. So they need to be looked at carefully and not simply passed over. Okay, here's our text verse for today. It's from the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the smallest book in the Old Testament. It does not have chapters, it has a chapter. So it's verses eight and nine. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed, to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The Bible shows that there would be an end to the people of Edom at some point. Now, if we keep reminding ourselves of who Esau represents, we can more clearly see the end of all fallen men. A time is coming when the line of Adam is going to disappear. And I don't know if you know that or not, but someday the line of Adam human beings are going to disappear. It's either going to be destroyed or it's going to be assimilated into the line of Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options for humanity. This is found pictured in the people of Adam who were either destroyed or assimilated into the nation of Israel. Now the Bible shows us these things both as an advanced warning and as an advanced way of understanding what choices we should make. It's all to be found in God's word. And so, may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. 
But before I give you the first of those three thoughts, I want to remind you, which I forget every single week, that uh, somebody brought donuts and water, and it's here. Please eat the donuts so nobody has to carry them home and drink the water if you get thirsty. And I see that Kelly over here brought some, uh, uh, what do you call them, star fruit. And so uh, I'm sure she's going to give those out to everybody. So I, I forget this week after week, and so I want to say it before we get into this. Here we go. The first of three thoughts is the generations of Esau. All right. Uh, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. This is now the ninth set of generations listed in the Bible. The last set of generations was Isaac, and that was way back in Genesis chapter 25. Esau's genealogy, or generations, is a branch off the main line which leads to the Messiah. This is something which is very common in the Bible. The last branch off of the main line was that of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son, who was born to him by Sarah's maid, Hagar. Okay? Only after he was listed came the generations of Isaac. The eight previous generations that the Bible noted are as follows. The generations of the heavens and the earth, that's Genesis 2, verse 4. The generations of Adam, that's uh, Genesis 5, verse 1. The generations of Noah, which is chapter 6, verse 9. The generations of the sons of Noah, that's chapter 10, verse 1. The generations of Shem, which is chapter 11, verse 10. The generations of Terah, who was Abraham's father, that's uh, Ge uh, Genesis 11, verse 27. Then we have the generations of Ishmael. That's in Genesis 25, verse 12. And finally, the generations of Isaac, which is uh, Genesis 25, verse 19. Now, that's I want you to know that, and the people that are watching may want to refer back to some of these, and that's why I'm listing them each time they come up. For context, right now, we are coming in right at the end of the previous chapter where Isaac died. Uh, yes, Isaac died, and Jacob and Esau buried him, okay? And... After this chapter is going to be the generations of Jacob. So we want to have the context of, uh, context of what's going on here. And this is going to be picturing what God does from Adam and Jesus. Because you have the first being replaced by the second throughout the Bible. And I may explain this again during the sermon. I may not. But this is why these generations are listed in the way they are. It's taking the not favored son first and then being replaced by the favored son. Okay, the listing of these sons is given in order of birth, just as Ishmael and Isaac were in Genesis 25. There is this harmony and there's this elegance in how the Bible is structured, and it's very precise, it's very intent, and it shows great care, and it shows great affection for what's being relayed to us. And I want you to know that when you see this type of care and this type of intricacy being shown here, and you say, well, what are all these names in here for? It's because God has a plan for you. And he's trying to tell you, if I'm taking this much care in my word, which is to tell you about my son, then obviously I care this much about you as well. Romans 8.28 says that we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we can remember that verse by looking at these type of structures and this type of intricacy that God is reaching out to us and saying, because of what I'm doing here, this is what I feel about you as well. Now, if you think of a, a watchmaker, for example, he does this beautifully constructed thing with all of these gears. If you've ever seen one of these old uh, hand watches and the gears are moving and they're, what is the reason he's doing that? Is he making it for himself just to look at some neat gears going around? 
No, there is an end result in what he is doing, and that is to give you a watch to give you the correct time of day. One thing is pointing to another thing, and that's what God is trying to do by showing us this intricacy in his word. This intricacy is to show you how much I care about you. And don't forget these lessons when you're reading the Bible and you think, oh, why did he put all this stuff in here? It's because of his love for you. All right, now, the word that is translated in this verse as genealogy in the New King James Version or generations in some other versions is the word toledot. I've explained this in several previous sermons, but I want you to be reminded of it, or if you've never heard it, I want you to know why this is here. Toledot can be spelled in a variety of ways, depending on the structure of the sentence. But the important thing about this word toledot is the inclusion or lack of a particular letter within the word. It is the letter Vav, which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. okay? Depending on whether there is one Vav or two Vavs or no Vav, we can see hints about the plan of redemption that is work, being worked out in the particular people groups. It's an amazing study, but God has hidden this secret in the Hebrew of this particular word, the word Toledot. Now to understand this better, and if you're curious about this, go back and watch the uh, sermon on uh, Genesis 5, or you can uh, probably go to the sermon on Ishmael, which would have been in Genesis 25, and I will explain this in more detail, and I give some pictures on YouTube, which I may include with today's as well. The spelling of Toledot here in this particular generation is identical to the spelling of Toledot, which is found in Jacob's genealogy at the be beginning of the next chapter. And as far as I'm concerned, that is very good news for Esau, if you understand this particular word. Esau is the older brother of Jacob, and he's the firstborn to Isaac and Rebekah. His name is given based on the appearance of them coming out of the womb at birth. The name Esau means covered with hair or hairy. However, his name is also similar to the word Asah, which means to do. Now, I've explained this in previous sermons, but I want you to be refreshed on it because it pertains to what we're going to look at today. In the first chapter of Genesis, when God made man, the word that he used was not to create. He used the word Asah. It's a form of this word which is related to the name of Esau. There's a connection which can be made between the two. Hair in the Bible denotes awareness. Man of all of the creatures that God created is an aware being. Esau, during all of the previous sermons that we've looked at, has pictured man on earth. Man was created and he is an aware being and that's why his name is Harry and what it's being relayed to. Now we need to go back to chapter 25 and we need to see the story of Esau's birth in order to see how he received his name. Let me read this to you. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah's wife conceived but the children struggled together within her and she said if all is well why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her two nations are in your womb two peoples shall be separated from your body one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and with his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
Esau was red and he was hairy like a garment. And so the immediate association with his name is being hairy. But another connection needs to be remembered too. Because he was hairy, he would have had the appearance of a man rather than a baby when he came out of the womb. He is the made man picturing Adam, the man who was made. However, Esau has another name. His name is Edom. This name means red. Here's where that name came from, which is also found in Genesis 25. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with some of that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau was already red, but when he asked for the red, red stew, the name stuck. And so now he is Esau and he is Edom. But again, the name Edom has a connection to the man who was made. Man was named Adam by God. The name Adam means the earthly one or the physical being or the corporeal one, but it has the same origin as the name Edom, the color red. Adam was taken from the ruddy red soil of the earth. And so here we have three connections for you to remember once again. First, Esau is like Esau. Man was made and Esau appeared as if fully made when born. Secondly, Esau was hairy and the concept of hair relates to awareness as in a sentient being. And third, Edom is red, which is tied to Adam, who is the physical being made from the reddish soil of the earth. All of this, as I said, I explained all of this in previous sermons, but now Esau's generations are being listed. And so it's asking us to remember this and to think on why he's considered so important as to have his genealogies listed in the Bible in the way they are. In fact, we have an entire chapter of the book of Genesis devoted to this guy and his generations, which comprise 43 verses just for him and the people connected to him. If Jacob is the inheritor of that which is spiritual, and we know he is, then Esau is the inheritor of that which is worldly. Jacob has the birthright, Jacob has the blessing. But Esau also received a blessing after Jacob was given his. Esau's blessing from his father Isaac said these words, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. As you can see, the reason for the genealogy listed here is because of Esau's worldly blessing. We are shown that the blessing took place in the reception of worldly things. By including this genealogy with the, the minuteness of detail that it includes, we see the prophecies were fulfilled exactly as they were made to him, both before his birth, when the Lord spoke to Rebekah about the babies in the womb, and when his father blessed him. And this is why Esau's generations precede Jacob's, or precede Jacob's generations. It's showing the picture of Adam and Christ. Esau and Jacob, and we see these parallels going on again and again and again throughout all of the stories of Jacob and Esau. Verse 2, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, 
Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. The names and places that are listed in this chapter all have importance and they all have relevance, especially because some of the people are listed under different names at other times. However, and I said this last week, if we were to analyze every name that's listed, it would take us about two or three months of sermons just to get through this chapter. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to simply name the prominent names and what they mean. The first is Esau's wife, Ada. Her name means ornament. It is the same name, believe it or not, as the second woman who's named in the Bible after Eve, okay? She was one of two wives married to Lamech, who was a descendant of Cain. So there you've got another picture because you know Cain and Abel. And we had the pictures of uh, Adam once again and Christ once again. And this woman shows up in this name. You're seeing these patterns, all right? Esau's second wife is listed as a holy bama. Some translations will say Oholibama. So if you have that, don't worry about it. It's just a different spelling of the same name. Her name means tent of the high places. Both Ada and Aholibama were daughters of Canaan, which means that they are descendants of Canaan, the cursed grandson of Noah. One is a Hittite, the other is a Hivite. Verse 3, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebiot. Now in chapter 27, we read these words. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan, which are the two wives that we just listed, did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebiot, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. This girl's name, Mahalat, in chapter 27, is Basemath here. Her name means sweet fragrances. Esau married her because she was a daughter of Abraham's son, Ishmael. His parents didn't like the first two wives, and he's hoping that by marrying this girl, he's going to be happy with them. All right? Verse 4. Now, Adab or Eliphaz to, Ryu, uh, to Esau. Eliphaz means God of strength. Verse 4 continues. And Basemath bore Reuel. Reuel means friend of God. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses' father-in-law has this same name, Reuel. He is called a Midianite. So once again, it could be the same person, but he's called a Midianite because of where he lives and not who his father is. Or it could be a different person with the same name, and scholars will debate this. Verse 5, And a holy Bamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Three sons are born to this wife of Esau. Jeush means haste, Jalam means hiding, and Korah means ice or baldness. Together, five sons are born to Esau while he lives in the land of Canaan. And once again, we have these lists of these people that are born in the land of Canaan. And you have to ask yourself, why is God doing this? Why is he showing us these things? Unless two things come about. The first is he's showing us other things that will happen and other things that will transpire in human history. And the second is that the detail here shows his care for the people of the world. Even people that are not of the covenant line of Jacob, which is Israel, which leads to the Messiah. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that if God tends to and cares enough to record the genealogies of people that are not in Jesus' generations, how much more does he care about the people who are? And that doesn't mean just before Jesus. That means people who have called on Jesus. So when you're 
feeling like a ship in the ocean that's being rocked all over the place. And you think, Jesus, why am I having all of this grief in my life? Come back and read these verses, and I'm absolutely serious about it. And you can remind yourself that God really does care enough about me that he cares about them, and they're not even a part of the covenant community. He really, really wants you to have this as your grounding and your mainstay in your life. So keep those type of things in mind when you read these seemingly difficult generations. God loves you. Our second thought today, Esau's move to Seir. Verse 6, then Esau took his wives. Have you been wondering while I'm doing this? Have you been wondering how I'm going to make a poem out of all these verses? I got name after name, and I tell you, poem's coming at the end of the sermon, so it'll happen. Anyway, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Here's what the Geneva Bible says about this verse right here. In this, God's providence appears, which causes the wicked to give place to the godly, that Jacob might enjoy Canaan according to God's promise. Now, I got to tell you something. Very rarely do I disagree with the commentaries of the Geneva Bible. They are usually short, they're concise, and they are spot on. But this time they blew it. Calling Esau wicked simply because he wasn't the son of promise is really stretching it. Now, I will tell you that in the New Testament, he's called a profane person for selling his birthright. But he's called profane because of what he did, not who he was. We've already seen that he's reconciled to his brother Jacob. That happened at the, uh, uh, the meeting after Jacob came back from Padanaram, and he was also there with his brother when they buried Isaac. So you have to wonder what people are thinking when they come up with commentaries like this. Esau is just a guy. And the people who come from him will often be at odds with Israel. There's no doubt about it. But they will eventually become a part of the Israelite people. The reason for the move is explained in the next verse. And it's the same reason that was given for the move of Lot away from Abraham. So we can't come to the conclusion that he's wicked and this is making uh, a place for God's people. It has nothing to do with it. And this brings me to the obvious thought in my own mind is how are we making our judgments about other people. Because you may be sitting in church and here comes somebody that's dressed in really crummy clothes. And James talks about this in his epistle towards the end of the, the, the Bible. Are we gonna look down on that person because he's wearing crummy clothes? When in fact, in our life, I guarantee you, there have been times where we wore clothes that people would have said, man, that guy looks like a bum. I guarantee every person here has. And we may be sitting next to somebody that has you know, beer on their breath in church, and you think, man, what a, what a dirt ball. When in fact, many of us came out of that. Or maybe some of us are struggling with it now. Or you say, I, I know that guy had an affair on his wife a couple years ago. When in fact, probably some of us have done that that are making that same judgment, or at least in our mind we do it. We don't just stay faithful to our husband or our wife in our mind. And we can get that right from here. The Geneva Bible made an error in their thought about Esau. And that type of error happens in our heads all the time. God loves the people of the world and he wants them reconciled to him, not chased away from him. And if you ever want a perfect demonstration of this, Paul knows this every single Saturday of my life, I'm down in the projects with people that are exactly like maybe the Geneva Bible was trying to point out. And these people need Jesus and they come to Jesus. And it is the most wonderful thing to see. I had a lady yesterday for the first time, we have gone up to her and prayed with her for years, and one word comes out of her mouth. What can we pray with you about? One word, money. She's got little snotty-nosed children all over the place. 
and there, there is profanity coming out of that front door, and I hear the word money every single week. And yesterday, after she said money, she prayed, she stopped. And she said, you know what? I want us to pray for every person in the projects right now. I want us to lift up all of the people that they will come to know Jesus. And I thought that is a real turning point in this person's life because she's never said any word except money to me for almost five years now. So there you go. This is the type of thing that we need to remember as we're looking at verses like this. Verse seven, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. Now, when Abraham and Lot lived together, eventually their livestock grew to the point that there were problems. Here's what it says in Genesis 13. Now the land was not able to support them, exact same words here, uh, that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So Lot moved south towards Edom or Sodom. Esau is moving south and east towards the land of Seir. Lot's line includes ancestors of Jesus through both of his daughters. The move was one of necessity, but it was also one directed by God to fulfill his plans. And the same is true with Esau here. This will be seen time and time and time again as Edom interacts throughout the rest of the Bible. God directed a move from Lot and Adam. I, I'm sorry, Lot and uh, Abraham. He went down here, then Sodom was destroyed. He was taken out of Sodom at the last moment. He ended up living in a cave. He ended up having sex with his two daughters. And yet Lot, his two daughters, and those two children, all of them are in Jesus' genealogy. And you wonder why God is telling us these stories. It's because he wants us to see Jesus. He wants to see what he is doing in human history. And the same thing is here with the Edomites. The livestock is growing. They need to separate because God is directing this for his purposes. And I don't know, I'll tell you right there that Edom was blessed if he had so much livestock that he needed to move. So once again, do we go back and we say he's wicked? No, we look at the Bible and let the Bible interpret the Bible. Verse eight, so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. The name Esau is mentioned and I counted them 25 times in this chapter. The name Edom is mentioned 11 times in this chapter. In five of those times, it is explicitly said that Esau is Edom or that Esau is the father of the Edomites. This is the second time that this has happened. This is obviously important to God and he wants us to know it. What is it about Esau being Edom, which is so significant that we're repeatedly told this? The answer goes right back to what the name means. If we understand that Esau and the Edomites are picturing Adam and his seed, and they have moved out of the land of Canaan, then we can more clearly see what's going on. Jacob is uh, renamed Israel and is the son of promise. Throughout the sermons detailing his life, he has consistently pictured Jesus. We can look now at Canaan as representing perhaps the Garden of Eden. Esau, who is Edom, was in Canaan just as Adam was in Eden. Adam, the earthly man, disobeyed God and he was cast out of Eden. He, in essence, traded his birthright for soup. But in his disobeying God, he also gained something. Anybody know that? When he disobeyed God, Adam actually gained something. He gained a conscience and he gained an awareness of his surroundings. That's found in Genesis 3, verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And in the same pattern, here in verse 8, it notes that Esau dwelt in Seir. 
Adam went into the world of awareness, and Esau has gone to the land of Seir, which means hairy. And I've already explained this in 25 different sermons. Hair denotes awareness in the Bible. None of this is arbitrary, and none of it is to be dismissed. The struggle which will continue between the descendants of Israel and the descendants of Edom is reflected in the spiritual struggle noted throughout the Bible. We are in Adam, and we are in our conscious state, or we are in Christ, and we now become in a spiritual state. And that is what's being reflected here in these seemingly obscure verses. This land that Esau moves to is the same land that he was living at when Jacob came back from Mesopotamia. It's the Mount of Seir. The name Seir probably comes from a guy who's going to be mentioned in next week's sermon in verse 20. He is Seir the Horite. But Seir's name may have come, the mountain may not have been named by, by this guy Seir, but Seir may have got his name from the mountain because of the mountain's hairy appearance. This mountain has low bramble bushes on it, and so it looks hairy. Another nearby mountain is called Halak, which means smooth. And so this certainly could be the case. This makes sense because when Esau moved there, the name Seir is retained. Okay, once again, hair is the connection between Esau and Seir. The hairy man living on the hairy mountain. The man of awareness living in the land of awareness. The name of the land is Seir. But from this point on, is also going to be called in the pages of the Bible, Edom. It is an area which is south of the land of Judah, and it extends from the end of the Dead Sea all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. If you've ever been to Israel, you know where this land is. It is in the modern land of Jordan, and it includes the ruins of Petra, which I went to with my mother here some years ago, back in 2003. Petra is the city which is carved from sandstone, and if you've ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade with that thing at the end of the movie, they go in, that is Petra. So this is the land that he has moved to. Our third and final thought today, the genealogy of Esau in Mount Seir, verse 9. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in Mount Seir. For a second time in the chapter, the genealogy of Esau is mentioned. Some scholars try to pick the Bible apart because of these type of repetitions. They will claim that it's a later insert, maybe. It's a different author. This isn't what's happening at all. Instead, I said earlier, the listing here is the genealogy after they move to Seir. The first one includes those only born in Canaan. The Bible is being very, very precise about this group of people, where they are born and who they are born to. What may seem like a long and tedious list is actually a careful record and account of a people which is picturing the trek of man from his time in the Garden of Eden all the way through his generations. I'm telling you what, God is in control of all of the details. And I would like you to think maybe about, I gave you an example of uh, the watch and the watchmakers making this for a second purpose. Well, I'll tell you one of the most extraordinary examples of machinery on the face of the earth is something that we don't even consider. It sits right between our legs when we're driving a car and it's called a transmission. And a transmission is not meant to sit in a pile of other metal and do nothing. It is meant to get you to go from one place to another place. It is an absolute marvel of human in ingenuity. 
and yet we just treat it as nothing. And if you compare that to the Bible and what we're learning about in Genesis chapter 36, it's the same concept. God is trying to get us to go from one place, which is in Adam, to another place, which is in Jesus Christ. And he's giving us these pictures to help us understand that. And this book is far, far more intricate than a transmission with its very, very close tolerances. It is nothing compared to the Bible. And this is what we need to keep telling ourselves when we're reading these type of verses. God really loves us enough to give us this detail because it tells us about Jesus. And if it's telling us about Jesus, then he must want us to know Jesus. Just put the, the, the blocks in order and it all seems to make sense. God loves you. God loves his son. God sent his son for you to show you that he loves you. Now accept his son and be reconciled to God the Father. All right? Verse 10, these were the names of Esau's son, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. This verse repeats basically what was said in verse 4 and 5. 11, and the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kanaz. Eliphaz, Esau's firstborn, has five sons. One of them is called Teman. In the book of Job, and this is important. One of the three people that comes to comfort Job after all of his afflictions is called Eliphaz the Temanite. Because of this, it is either the same person mentioned right here, and he's living in the land named after his son, which seems likely, or it is his grandson who is called a Temanite after his father. Either way, either he or one of his grandsons shows up again in the book of Job. In that book, Eliphaz and his two friends speak wrongly about God, and God chastises them for it. Here's what that account says. This is from Job chapter 42. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. As you can see, this line of people descending from Esau has incorrect concepts of who God is, just as men all over the world who descend from Adam do. God, in his mercy, though, corrects them and gives them an opportunity to be forgiven. These are the lessons that we need to remind ourselves as we travel through these seemingly difficult verses. There's nothing boring about them, but instead there is the richness of God's love for the people of the world. All of Adam's fallen children symbolized by the descendants of Edom. Now I have a question for you because I just read you from the book of Job. And if you paid attention, then you may know or think you know the answer to this question. Who is the shortest person that is recorded in the pages of the Bible? Well, if you're not sure, there is a guy in the New Testament, his name is Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man, he climbs a sycamore fig tree because he can't see over the people's head, and he sees Jesus. He is not the shortest man in the Bible. There's somebody that's shorter than him. One of the books of the Bible is named after him. His name is Nehemiah, okay? That's a short little guy, all right? But there's somebody that's even shorter than him, and his name is Joseph. Joseph, yes, the son of Jacob, was a very, very short man. We know that because Pharaoh made him a ruler. 
It was only 12 inches long, okay? But there is somebody that's shorter than Joseph, and we read about him in the book of Job. His name is Bildad the Shuhite. That is a very, very small guy. I want you to know. But believe it or not, there is somebody that's even shorter than Bildad the Shuhite. Actually, there's a couple of them. Their names are the apostles Peter and John. And we know this is true because while Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, these two guys slept on their watch. That is some really small guys, okay? There are the two shortest people in the Bible, Peter and John. All right, but they did great things after the Lord got hold of their heart after the resurrection. Verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Here in this verse, we have the introduction of a group of people who is going to continue to afflict Israel for many, many generations and will almost bring them to ruin. All right. Timnah is the daughter of Seir, and she's noted as the sister of Lotan's wife in the next, uh, next week's verses. Okay. She became the concubine of Eliphaz, the son of Esau. Because she becomes the concubine of Eliphaz, it gives the descendants of Esau the chance to intermix with the people of Seir. And eventually, they will take over and expel that group of people, the Horites. We find this noted in Deuteronomy chapter 2. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave them. The Edomites will gain ascendancy in the land, and this will continue for many generations. Eventually, Herod, Israel's king at the time of Jesus, will be from the Edomite people. In the New Testament, we call them Edomians, but it's the same group of people. As you can see, every detail eventually looks forward to the coming of Jesus. But the reason why Timnah is mentioned is because she has a son, and his name is Amalek. This group of people is going to descend from him is going to be a great and long-standing enemy of the people of Israel. After the exodus from Egypt, this group, the Amalekites, is going to attack the Israelites. The story is memorable, and it's a favorite one of God's people, and so I'm going to go ahead and read it to you real quickly. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, remember, this is the line of people that we're talking about. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joseph, uh, Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, her, Aaron, and her went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people at the edge of the sword. Then the, Moses said, then Mos, uh, the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This same group of people is going to continue to afflict Israel throughout the time of the judges. And when the kingdom is established, their presence, these Amalekites, is going to bring down the first king of Israel. When God commanded King Saul to utterly destroy the remaining people of Amalek, he failed to do it. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Now, this is something that's called harem. It means devoted to God. Everything is to be destroyed. And he didn't. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatling, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Because of his failure, Samuel went to King Saul and he spoke these words to him. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Okay, so he loses his position as king because of this group of people, the Amalekites. But even worse, the king of the Amalekites here, this guy's name Agag, is an ancestor to a guy named Haman, the great enemy of the Jews who is recorded in the book of Esther. This guy went to the king of Persia and he said, I want to destroy all of the Jews around the entire empire. And this is what the story of Esther is telling us about. This line of people right here. Saul's failure to do as he was instructed continued on as a thorn to Israel and it almost caused their extinction. And that ought to tell us right there, a real quick little life lesson is that every decision that we make, every decision, especially one in disobedience, will have long-lasting effects, possibly in our life and in the lives of our children and in the lives of our grandchildren. I mean, here's Charlie going to, uh, not going to church and staying home and drinking beer. And the children are home and they see that in their father. And then what do they do? They grow up to be losers. I don't mean my son's a loser or my daughter. I'm just giving an example here. But you see, and then they get into drugs and you say, oh, why did this happen? How could this have happened in my home, right? And maybe he ends up in jail or maybe he ends up whatever. It's because of one decision leading to another, to another, and then that'll affect his children and his children's children. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He doesn't do it actively. It's a passive occurrence. We do it to ourselves and the Lord allows it to happen. And that cycle needs to be broken by Christ. We need to, I, I, I'm not one to say you have to attend church, but yeah, you should attend church because this is where you get edified and this is where you learn the word of God and this is where you get built up. You're not going to get it sitting at home watching the NFL. So please keep this in mind. This little lesson right here. One person has a concubine. He doesn't marry her. The child ends up being a screw up probably because of that decision and it affects almost annihilating the people of Israel because of decisions like this. All right, verse 13. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahas, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. Reuel, Esau's son, and the grandson of Ishmael had these four sons. But nothing further of note is recorded about any of these people through the rest of the Bible. Another real quick application for you. How are you going to be remembered? You got these guys, their names are given, and there's no record of them doing anything good or bad. I mean, there are people in the Bible that do bad and it's recorded. At least you know what they did. These guys just sat on their thumbs their whole life and there's nothing of note from God in his word. Is that what it's going to be when you die? You know, somebody told me about the dash once. You know, Charlie Garrett was born in 1964 and he dies in uh, 2013. And in between there, there's a dash. That's your whole life. That little hyphen right there is your entire life. What is it that's going to be said about that dash in your life? You get a lesson from it right here. Sons born to this person that are never mentioned again. Gives their name and off they go. Verse 14. These were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. 
and she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. This is basically a repeat of verse 5. Unlike the other sons of Esau, there's no mention of any grandsons. Once again, only what is needed for God to instruct us is given. Each name here certainly has a special significance and it has a purpose, but the inclusion of grandsons born to these people has no bearing, and so they're not named. Now today we've looked at 14 of the 34 verses of chapter uh, 36, or 43 verses in chapter 46. In them we find concepts of hope for fallen man, we learn lessons of disobedience, of the descendants from these people, they're going to come against God's people, and even how God uses the names of places and locations to make spiritual applications as he works out his marvelous plan for us. Nothing is superfluous, nothing is arbitrary, and nothing is missing in God's word. And throughout it all, one continuous theme is displayed, and that is God's love for you and how he is working it out through the giving of his son, to reconcile us, fallen sons of Adam, pictured by Edom, to his father. This plan has been going on since before the creation of the world, and it is going on in each person right here, right now. As you learn his word, as you read his word, he is revealing his son to you. But some of you may not know him yet. I don't know. I always take it as a given that all the people I know here have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but I don't want to assume that that's correct. All right? And so I would ask you that if you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, to please give me just one more moment of today to explain to you once again the importance of knowing Jesus Christ personally. We've been talking about Edom and Esau, who is picturing Adam, who was Esau, made by God. He's the fully made man, and God gave him this beautiful place to live in, and he gave him one commandment. One commandment, and it was a negative commandment. Don't do this one thing. And of course, he did it, and it was necessary for us to, uh, to exercise our free will and to uh, learn that we need to have a relationship with God, that it's not a given, but he did. He violated God's will. He sinned, and because of that, he was sent out of Eden, but now he has an awareness. He's out in the land of awareness and he's living his life. But there's a problem with that one sin that he committed. It is in him and he cannot go back before that sin and undo it. And even worse is the problem that every child that he has and every child that they have for all of human history has inherited that one sin of Adam. So it doesn't matter if you've sinned or not because you inherited his sin and so sin is in you. And yes, you have sinned and so you've added your sin on top of his sin. And you can't go back before that sin and undo it. It's not possible. We are in time and we're going forward. And so God did something marvelous by sending his own son, born of a woman, so he did not inherit Adam's sin, born of God the Father, he's the God-man. And now he is qualified to live the sinless life because he's born without sin. He still has to do it though. And he was born under the law, which means he cannot violate any precept of the law. The Bible record says, shows us that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life without sinning, born without sin, and now lived without sinning, and so he's still sinless. And what did he do at that point? He gave up his life on a cross to say, I will take your unrighteousness, and I will grant you my righteousness. I will take your sin, and I will give you my sinlessness. If you simply believe, I will make the substitutionary atonement substitute you for me. And that's what he asks you to do, is to accept that. And to prove that he is qualified to do that, he popped back out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. That's why we die. Well, he died, but he came back to life, which proves that he had no sin in and of himself. 
So all of the sin that is put on him from you is gone forever. The sin is as far as the east is from the west by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he proved it in the resurrection. So if you've never taken the time to accept what Jesus Christ did for you, I would ask that you would just make that simple call of faith. I want my sins forgiven. I trust in Jesus as Lord and you will be reconciled to God the Father for all eternity. This is my hope and my prayer for each person here and that you will spread that message to somebody else as well this week. All right, uh, I have a closing verse to you for you today from Isaiah chapter 34. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. This is speaking of the end times here. This is kind of a, a precursor to what's being pictured in the book of Revelation. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Once again, we see the people of the world being either in Christ or utterly annihilated. And those are the only two choices for all of us. Picture it in Isaiah, said again in Obadiah. Next week is Genesis 36, 15 through 43. It's called an awareness in the sons of Adam. That'll be our 91st Genesis sermon. Please make sure to read and study those verses. Know what every single name means and all of those hundreds of names. Be able to pronounce them properly in Hebrew. And uh, if you want to refer to the Greek as well, I'd uh, give you an extra uh, two points on your uh, grade if you do that, okay? Now, I'll tell you this, before we do our poem today, which I'm excited to do to see if I actually did a good job on it, is um, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. Exactly. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you, so call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Here's our uh, poem today. It's called The Generations of Esau. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Maybe one name came from his dad and the other from his mom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, and then she is the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, she is the sister of Nebioth, having the same father. Now Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah, lots of names in the story to tell. These were the sons of Esau so grand who were born to him in Canaan the land. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household also, his cattle and all his animals, maybe some otters, and all his goods, and he was set to go. All which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went from, to a country some distance away from the presence of his brother Jacob, and then he left the land, as the Bible does say. For their possessions were too great, bringing dangers for them to dwell together as one flock, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. The Bible makes this clear. And this is the genealogy of Esau listed here. He is the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, Esau's wife. And Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. She always brought a smile to his life. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, the first one, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kemnaz too. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz, and so his family grew. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife, lots of sons to bring joy to his life. Now these were the sons of Reuel, Nahasera, Shama, and Mitzah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. Oh well, to feed them would take a lot of pizza. These were all Aholibamah's sons, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, 
the daughter of Zibion, the sons, these are the ones. And she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Lots of names and plenty of rhymes, and some are repeated several times. But they are given to establish God's word and to lead us to insights about Jesus, his son. They show us the glory of our dear Lord, who through his shed blood, the victory is won. Adam's seed, reflected in Esau's generations, is reconciled and restored through Jesus' blood that was shed. God has done it for people in all nations, a vast multitude marching with Christ as its head. Let us sing greatly and magnify our glorious Lord as we wait for the treasures which for us in heaven are stored. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for these lists of names, these seemingly obscure and useless list of names. Not one is wasted. Every name is there to tell us something glorious about you, about what you are doing for us, and how much you truly must love us, all pointing to Jesus and what he did to reconcile us to you. How great, how glorious, how wonderful you are. Thank you for your word, your precious word, which tells us all of these things. And Lord, I have a special prayer on my heart right now for the people that are here at Church on the Beach and uh, that you would bless each one of them in the week ahead and take good care of them. But in particular, our good friends who are departing from us and that you will be with them, that you will lead them, give them a good church to attend where they will be edified and built up by you, a pastor that will shepherd them properly and that will uh, just tell them the glories and the mysteries which are hidden in your word now revealed to their waiting ears. This I would pray that you would be glorified in their lives. And thank you for uh, Kelly's health. She was so sick last week and we thank you for that. We thank you for every other good blessing you've blessed us with. Oh God, you are great and you are glorious. And in Jesus' name we praise you, amen.